Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians 2. That's where we will be. And I will read our text for us. It's Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Never mind. I'm going to pray for us. Unless you want. I mean, it's good. I can read it again. I'll pray. Uh, Father, Your word is truth, and we want to live by truth. And so as we open your word now, I pray you would help us to live by truth. For the glory of your son, Jesus, amen. I got in his face. That's what Paul says he did to Peter at this church in Antioch. The English kind of makes it nice. I opposed him to his face. What it says is, I got in his face. Why? These are, I would say, the two most important church leaders in the early church, Peter and Paul. And one is getting in the face of another. I mean, imagine, and he's in Iowa on vacation right now, but imagine like halfway through the sermon, Kevin Earhart pops up on stage, gets in my face, and says, you're a hypocrite, you stand condemned, all things Paul said to Peter, give me the mic. (laughs) That'd be a weird moment for me, but also for you. And that's what happens here in the church in Antioch. Why? Well, uh, this morning we're going to have two points. Uh, Why Paul got in, in Peter's face, the threat to the gospel, And secondly, how Paul lays out a cure to that threat. So the threat and the cure. So this is the argument. This is what is going on. And we're told it in verse 12 that some leaders from Jerusalem, some men from James, is how Paul describes them, comes to the church in Antioch and starts communicating to the church, listen, Jewish people, they eat at these tables, and Gentile people eat at these tables. You shouldn't cross any longer. Why? Or we should be asking, why would they, they say that? Um, and there's a couple of reasons why they would try and do this. And one of them we've talked about each week of this Galatians series so far, which is when Christianity launched, one of the, the most important questions that had to be answered was, What do you do with all of the the Old Testament laws, the ceremonial laws that Jewish people practiced in order to be be able to worship God? It required dressing in certain ways. It required eating foods in certain ways. And it was hard to imagine saying, well, let's just ignore a lot of the Hebrew Bible. So that's, that's the question facing these Galatian Christians is what do we do with the ceremonial law. And I love the way uh, Tim Keller defines what the ceremonial law is in his commentary on Galatians. He writes this, the Old Testament instituted the clean laws. 
a complicated series of regulations for worshipers to follow in order to be ceremonially clean and acceptable for the presence of God in worship. People could not draw near to God if they ate certain unclean foods, if they had touched dead things, if they had a disease or touched someone who did, and so on. The ceremonial law was a teaching method by which the holy God showed that sinful people cannot go into his presence without cleansing. Despite Jesus explaining that with his arrival, the time for these laws had passed, God had to send Peter a vision to show him why the ceremonial law was finished. So what would happen is, is if you were a Jewish person in this day, you wore certain clothing, you ate certain foods, you couldn't do certain things. Not like morally wrong things, but you just couldn't do certain things. And if that happened, if you ate the food or if you were near someone who ate the food or were dressed in the wrong way, you were considered unclean and not acceptable to go into worship. So these laws were very important to Jewish culture and they were hard to let go of. So then what happens, and this was some of last week, and I didn't go into great detail, but in Galatians 2 verses 1 through 10, Paul and his friend Titus, who was not a Jewish person, he was a Gentile convert, go to Jerusalem to meet with, with, uh, with James and Peter and a number of the leaders to ask the question, what do we do with the ceremonial law? Because, Paul said, I've not been making anyone do it because that's not what the gospel says. We're now right before God because of his grace, not because we make ourselves clean through our efforts to go to, into his presence. And what we read in Galatians 2 is everyone agrees. You're right. The ceremonial law is over. Jesus said it. Peter had a vision. It's over. It's over. But then we read men from James, one of the pillars in Jerusalem, men from James came down to Antioch and said, no, 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 no. That's not what was decided. What, what needs to happen is Gentiles must practice the Jewish ceremonial laws if we're to eat together. If they don't practice the Jewish ceremonial laws, they have to stay over here and the Jews have to stay over here. Now this might be confusing to you. Wait a minute, I thought you just said they all decided in Jerusalem not to practice the law, but now James is sending men to say you have to practice it again? Well, think of it like this. There are times when my children come to me and they say, uh, Mom has told me I can do this. You already know where I'm going. And what they say has some semblance of bearing to reality. But it's actually the precise opposite of what their mother had told them to do. And, and I ask with a quizzical look, did she really say that? Oh, yes. Yes. And then when I go to speak to my wife, it turns out it's the exact opposite. Well, that's what's probably happening here. They've, they've taken something James did say, and they've twisted it to mean the precise opposite. And they're trying to use James's name now to undo what had already been undone. So that's one side of things. This is a pressure campaign to force the ceremonial law on, on Gentile converts. But there's a... There's something else going on here, which is a little bit harder to stomach. In verse 15, Paul says this. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Now, if you're reading that and you're, you're willing to hear what's being said there, it sounds a little insensitive, 
I mean, Paul's basically saying, we're Jews by birth, not dirty Gentiles. It's a little insensitive. insensitive. If you were bold enough, and I'm going to be bold enough in this moment, you would say that sounds a little racist. And it is. Because for many people at this time, the Jewish laws went beyond the ceremonial law and what it said and began to assume that it said things it did not say, which is the Gentiles are, are unclean. They're dirty. We shouldn't associate with them. A couple of Jewish writings from this time, Jubilees 22.16 says to Jewish people of Gentiles, eat not with them for their works are unclean. Or in the letter of Aristeus, to prevent our being perverted by contact with others or by mixing with bad influences, Moses hedged us in on all sides with strict observances connected with meat and drink and such and hearing and sight after the manner of the law. We don't want to be perverted by those unclean people, therefore we must withdraw from them. Now that was not the point of the ceremonial law. It's totally normal to say, this is my culture and I love it. I dress a certain way, I eat a certain way, I listen to a certain type of music. That's, my pre- That's all good. But we often take that to the place of, therefore my culture is better than yours. You're your music is inferior and wrong. Your dress is wrong. Your food is disgusting. You are unclean. I don't want to be around you. You should go back home. And that's what's behind Paul in verse 15 when he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. But then he does something. He says, Peter, uh, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Here's what he's saying with that second half of the statement. He's saying, yes, we're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, but Peter, what happened when Jesus saved us? We said we are sinners, unclean, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ's graciousness towards us because of his finished work. That this idea that my culture is better than yours, Therefore, you are inferior to me, unclean. You must remain separate. Is the seed of ethnic nationalism, ethnic division, and ultimately racism. Do you see why Paul got in Peter's face? This is not just about having a a good potluck where everyone shares the same tables together. There's far more going on here than that. That if this persists and Peter refuses to eat with Gentile people and Jewish leaders refuse to eat with Gentile people, the church is going to be split into two. There's going to be a Jewish church and there's going to be a Gentile church. There's going to be a church built around the ethnicity of the Jewish people and their Hebrew scriptures, and there's going to be a Gentile people that does not include those things. The church is going to be split in two. Now, I'll get to the end. The good news is Peter repents. 
And the church becomes a truly trans-ethnic movement. One of the things that excites me about being a Christian is this is the only religion that is truly trans-ethnic in its makeup. If you were to ask, where is the center of Islam? There's an answer. There's a city. There's a place. There's a culture. If you ask where the center of Judaism even is, there's a center, a place. If you ask, where's the center of Christianity? There's no answer. Because the church is thriving on every continent in the world. Currently, the church is most thriving in South America, in Africa, and in Asia. There's Christians in North America and in Europe. There's Christians in Australia. If there are enough people in Antarctica, I don't know if people are living there or why they would live there, but if there are people in it, there are Christians there. Because at this moment, Paul made clear the gospel is a trans-ethnic movement. It's not attached to a particular culture. And no culture can, can look at another culture and say, you are inferior to us, Christians. Do you see why Paul got in Peter's face? And Peter repented. That's the good news. And the church did become a trans-ethnic movement that has swept through the world. And because Peter repented, you and I are now Christians. The gospel got to Europe because it wasn't stopped in the Middle East. But I want to pose a hypothetical to you this morning. What if Peter didn't repent? What if when Paul got in Peter's face, Peter stood his ground and said, no, 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 no. There will be a Gentile church and there will be a Jewish church. Or if he had said something like, like this, okay, well, I will permit Gentiles to be Christian as long as I don't have to eat with them. I will permit Gentiles to be Christians as long as when the church gathers, we put them in the balcony where we don't have to see them. Or if Peter had said, I will permit Gentiles to be Christians as long as we build separate bathrooms, separate water fountains, separate lunch counters so that I don't have to share space with unclean people. Peter repents, but we don't have to wonder about that hypothetical because we live in that hypothetical. Our culture is an ethnically divided church because we've had an ethnically divided history. And that for most of our history as Christians in America, Many white Christians believe themselves to be ethnically superior to Christians with more melanin in their skin tone and refuse to share their table as equals. So for me to briefly walk through that history, the many slaves in the United States had Bibles, but they had to hide them from their masters because their masters didn't want them reading books like Exodus or Galatians because of what was in them. Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom Christ has set you free. You don't want a slave reading that. So if a, a slave got a hold of a Bible and a master got a hold of that Bible, they'd cut out the book of Exodus. And we have remnants of Bibles given to slaves with half the Bible cut out. Anything mentioning freedom. A common practice for much of American history was that when a, a black slave would be presented for baptism, for conversion to Christianity, a wonderful occasion, they had to make two confessions. First, that Jesus is Lord, and second, that slavery is good, endorsing white supremacy and promising not to run away to freedom. That was the, the rules to be baptized. Third, even after slavery, with the institution of Jim Crow laws, we made 
people who had more melanin in their skin tone sit in balconies, which drove to start new denominations, which is why we have many ethnically based denominations in the United States. They said, if we're not equals at your table, we'll go to a place where we can be equally before the table of God. And this history isn't ancient. Tony Evans, in his book by Moody Press, Oneness Embraced, tells of uh, in the mid-1980s, wanting to start a radio ministry, Tony Evans, famous preacher from Dallas, a black man, a black Christian, which is largely irrelevant, but he was told by white radio broadcasters, white Christians don't want to hear a black preacher, so we're not putting you on the radio. It's the 1980s. I was alive. I like to think I'm not that old. This is not ancient history like I often hear. This is fresh. And this has had enormous costs. It's why I feel like in many times conversations around race, I'm given two choices. One is that uh, it's hopeless, everyone's racist, it's over. Or two, there's no problem, stop talking about it. Can you see why Paul gets in Peter's face and says, this stops now. We are not dividing the church along Jewish and ethnic lines. That's not the gospel. And then what Paul does is he gives what is probably verses you've heard quoted many times. I think maybe one of the most powerful summaries of the gospel we have in the New Testament. Verses 15 through 21. But it all is driven out of a moment of ethnic division. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time is, is talk about how Paul talks about the gospel in light of his hope that the church in Antioch not be separated along ethnic lines. And I'm going to say three things from what Paul says in verses 15 through 21. First, the gospel cures, uh, so let me back up. The threat to the gospel is ethnic division. I won't share table fellowship with people who do not look like me. The gospel is the cure to that. So how is it the cure to that? First, the gospel cures ethnic division by declaring us all equal, equally sinful. Right? This is what Paul is saying in verse 15 when he says, we're Jews by birth, Peter, not Gentile sinners, not those unclean Gentiles. And then he goes and he explains the gospel. But Peter, now what do we believe? Now we believe we're not justified through our cleanliness, through our moral efforts, through works of the law. We are justified by faith in Christ. Jesus has made us unclean sinners right before the Lord. He's lowered us all as equals. And I love the way Doug Moo talks about this in his commentary, Galatians. He's a New Testament scholar. He says in in Ephesians, when Paul talks about ethnic divisions, he raises Gentiles up to be co-equals with the Jewish people as covenant people with God now. But here in Galatians, he lowers Jewish people down to equals with Gentiles, saying we're all unclean. We're all morally sinful. No one can look at another human being and think themselves superior because of what they eat, what they dress, how they act. It's impossible to do that and believe the gospel at the same time. The best way to illustrate this, this may uh, may not have happened, but there's a a legend around G.K. Chesterton, a British Christian, who uh, the newspaper of the day uh, sent out a lot of requests to have people respond to the question, what is wrong with the world? 
And they were going to publish a bunch of responses. What's wrong with our world? So they got a bunch of responses, and Chike Chesterton's response was this. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I don't think there's any better summary of what the gospel asks us to cop it to than that. What's wrong with this world is not the unclean sinners, the people over there, the people doing things I don't like. The problem with this world is me. And the good news for me is that I am welcomed to the table of God, not by doing the right things, but through faith in Christ's finished work on my behalf. So that has a couple of implications for you and I, both individually and corporately. First, individually, it means I'm only saved by the grace of God. I can never look with superior eyes on anyone else, ever, for anything. But secondly... It has social and societal implications because what happens when sinners get together and start building governments and churches and denominations and structures? What happens? Sinners build sinful things. And so I love the way M. Scott Pett puts this. He says, one sinner is a labyrinth, mass of lies and twisted motives and distorted communications. That's good news. That's one patient. Let him and his kin, plus ordinary sinners and pretty good persons and everybody else, sow and reap and sow again. Let them fertilize and cross-fertilize each other, and the resulting culture will defy rational analysis. So to apply Genesis 2 to our day, a couple things. One, I hear often in the church world today, you know, that ethnic division, racism, that's a past sin. Stop talking about it. And my response to that is, Peter was personally discipled by Jesus for three years, and he was one of his inner three. Peter got a miraculous vision that was told, these, these cleanliness laws don't matter anymore. What you eat doesn't make you clean. A miraculous vision. It's in Acts 10. You can read it later today. And yet Peter continues to struggle with thinking Jewish people clean and Gentile people unclean. So, if your take is, no, I'm actually sp- uh, spiritually superior to Peter, and maybe you are, maybe God should have given you the, the opportunity to write two books in the New Testament, but he didn't, and if Peter struggled with this, so will I, and so will you. And then second, if, if I look at the current landscape of our, our church in America today, it is still largely segregated along ethnic lines. And this goes beyond an individual sin problem. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, there are powers, there are structures, there are principalities at play that keep us divided. So the answer isn't just changing every individual heart towards a new future. There's more ground to be tilled up and unfurled so that we could be what Jesus said we are to be. And that leads me into second. The gospel cures ethnic division by setting us on a path towards a multi-ethnic future. So I think the most important verse in this passage is verse 14, where Paul says of Peter, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that word, not in step with the truth, is, it's the word orthopedeo. You might hear orthopedics in that. Orthopedeo, it means ortho is straight, pedeo is to walk. It's to walk straight. That Paul is saying of Peter, you're not walking straight with the gospel. 
So think of it like this. The gospel is not just a message by which we believe and get into the Christian faith. Paul is saying here the gospel is like a path we begin to walk. And we have to walk straight down that path to the future that Jesus has for us. So think of it like this. A few months ago, I went on a hike with my son Micah at Joshua Tree National Park. And I'm going to throw up a picture of, we hiked to a mine, and you could see the path we walked going back. And it goes back several miles. We had to straight walk that path to get to the mine. You walk off the path, you don't get to the mine. So here's the thing. Jesus has a future in mind for us that we have to straight walk. So what is it? Well, two Two passages, right? Matthew 28, as the disciples began the path toward that future, what does Jesus say they are supposed to do? They are supposed to, Matthew 28, verse 18, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's saying you are to to have a, a forward motion that takes you to all people in the world, which means if you are a Christian, you are called to take the teachings, life, and way of Jesus to people who are not like you. He commands that of us. And that may not mean you move to Africa, but it does mean when Africa moves to us or when Asia moves to us, we have a burden to see the gospel go to people who are not like us. That's a command of Jesus, but that's also where our story ends. In Revelation 7, 9, we read, After this, I look, John looks, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The end of our path with Jesus is a new heavens and new earth of all people, tribes, tongue, and language. And yet I often hear from Christians in our context today, that's true, but people prefer their own preferences, their own music, their own styles, and everyone should just kind of sort along those lines, and, and that's, how, that's how the church should work. And I want, that is a true statement. That is not a gospel statement, but that is a true statement. The gospel says, I'm walking a different path. And I'm going to straight walk a path where my, my table is included with people who are not like me, who love Jesus and serve him, and I learn and grow from them. So, maybe you're sitting there thinking, wow, I didn't expect this. Um, I haven't even had my donut yet, and we're t- what are we doing? Um, let me say, I want to invite you to two responses this morning. First is some of you, maybe this, you've been thinking about this, or you're like, I haven't been thinking about this. Uh, we're going to have um, some reading groups this summer uh, led by uh, Karna Driscoll and Charles Nathan, our Mosaic group. And we'd love to have you maybe join up with one of those groups just to l- learn more kind of what's behind some of what I'm saying this morning. But two, and this is probably for all of us, the first one probably isn't. My hope is that you'll leave this sermon refusing to settle for what Christianity is today in the United States. That you'll refuse to settle for what Christianity is until you know Christians in Gary, Indiana, and in Ethiopia, on the south side and the north side, in Asia, South America. Because they, the, the world has moved around us, and Jesus has commanded you, as a part of your discipleship to him, to take his gospel to all nations. This is a part of your calling. And too many Christians, I think, we're settling for a Christianity where we only have people like us at our table. And can I say, as someone who has, has spent time with global Christians or spent time with Christians across in parts of the city that 
um, people like me typically don't live. I find such vibrant expressions of faith. I long for Revelation 7, and I lament what is and what has, be- what has been made because of the history we walk out of. Don't settle for less than what Jesus told you to walk towards. And it is a people of all tribes, all tongues, all nation, crying out before the Lamb. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to our God. That's second. Third and finally, this will be brief. The gospel cures our ethnic division by the Son of God inviting us to his table. So we've been asking this question, but on what basis does God want to have fellowship with you and with me? And Paul says it in verse 20. I shouldn't have closed my Bible. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. On what basis do we have fellowship with God? The first is faith. That in a few moments when we walk up to his table and receive communion, he won't smite us dead. Even though the whole point of the cleanliness laws was to say, you can't just walk into the presence of a holy God. You're not clean. You're not morally sufficient. You can't do it. Like you got to earn your, your way. You got to be clean to come into the presence of, of God. You can't just walk into the presence. So how do we walk? Well, we walk in by faith. Faith that Christ has completed everything sufficient for me in order to be at his table. And here's, it's not blind faith. We're not just hoping for the best at the table, but as Paul said, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. So when we celebrate communion, we don't, we don't eat a, a random snack. It's bread, which represents Jesus' body given for you to get you back to his table. We drink the juice to represent his blood was shed for you to get you back to his table. And if anyone in the universe ever had a right to say, look at those unclean people, I will not share a table with them. It was Jesus towards me and towards you, and he didn't do that. Instead, he gave his life to get us to his table. And now Jesus has a table full of people that look nothing like him, me and you. And if Jesus has a table that is full of people that look nothing like him, what should our tables look like? Let us pray. Father, what good news that in, in, in a minute as we take communion, we can come in confident faith because you loved us and gave yourself for us. So we come by faith. But Father, I pray as we, as we eat this meal in remembrance of your son, We would walk out of this place, walking the straight path of the gospel to show to a world we are different than a world of division and hatred and anger. But we who have called ourselves sinners come into a world to invade grace and peace from you, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, here's the deal. We're We're about to take communion in a totally new way, and it's going to be chaos. And it's okay, because church potlucks should be chaos. At least that's my theology. So here's how we're going to do this. We have um, four stations up front, and then one station up in the balcony. Um, If you are able, we're inviting you to come uh, down in in groups of five to seven to one of those stations. 
The people serving you will, will hand you one piece of bread as they pass the bread along. Then we'll put the juice out. You'll dip the bread into the juice, and you'll hold it in your hand for a minute. Um, and then as the leader serves you, then you'll eat it together to remember Christ welcoming us back to his table. All the bread is gluten-free, if that's what you need. If you're not quite ready for this, for, for COVID or other reasons, mobility, we have individual communion cups. You can either take uh, this meal privately at, at, at where you're sitting, or you can bring the cup up and, and take it with the groups of of people. So again, admittedly, we don't know what we're doing right now. It's going to be very chaotic. Um, but what it means is you and I, wherever you are, wherever you're, you're coming from this week, you get to come to the table because of your faith in Christ, not because of your moral effort. And that's a pretty chaotic thing. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then the music's going to play. And as you're ready, uh, we're going to invite you down to the table, and we're going to figure this out together. Let's pray. God, we gather as a church now to eat the bread and drink the juice, or to tip the bread into the juice, um, to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, to unify us at your table, not based on any traits of who we are, but solely based on your grace and kindness through Jesus Christ. So now, Father, gather us at your table, welcome us home, and fill us with faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.